Welcome to the Woman Warriors Podcast. You worry, I worry, we all do. If you're paying attention to the world today, there's a lot for women to feel worried and anxious about. As we explore the worries with curiosity and compassion, we learn to live more authentically and unleash the warrior within, someone who is strong, capable, and resilient, come what may. It's time to stop battling against yourself and start using your powers to meet everyday challenges with energy, purpose, and bravery. Now here's your host, Elizabeth Cush. Hi, and welcome back to the Woman Warriors podcast. I'm your host, Elizabeth Cush, and I am excited to share with you our most popular episode of 2020 this week. So instead of doing a new episode, I'm going to reshare the most downloaded episode for the year. I know it's been a tough year, and just looking back, trying to focus on some of the positives, even though it's been so hard. And I know that by intentionally thinking about more positive things, I'm also being very aware that there was some messed up shit this year. So I hope 2021 is a better year and we will be having new episodes again after this, but also I will be sharing some other episodes, maybe the most downloaded episode of all time, or just something that feels relevant to our experience this past year. So this week, I am re-releasing my discussion, my talk, my interview with Dr. Sarah McKay. She's a neuroscientist in Australia, and we dove deep into women's bodies, our hormones, how hormones impact how we feel. But there were also some unexpected ideas, results from her research that she discusses here on the podcast that maybe it's not all about the hormones. Maybe there's a lot of what's happening for us as women that includes social messaging, expectations, how we feel about our bodies. So I hope you'll enjoy this re-release. I found her to be incredibly easy to talk to, a great conversationalist, funny, and she has a wealth of information that she shared with us here. So Dr. Sarah McKay sums up her research with the words nature, nurture, and neuroplasticity. Sarah is a neuroscientist and science communicator who specializes in translating brain science research into simple, actionable strategies for peak performance, creativity, health, and well-being. As the director of the Neuroscience Academy, Sarah offers training in applied neuroscience and brain health for helping professionals. Sarah has authored the popular science book, The Woman's Brain Book, The Neuroscience of Health, Hormones, and Happiness, which explores women's health from womb to tomb through the lens of neurobiology. In 2019, she hosted an episode of ABC's flagship science TV show, Catalyst, exploring biohacking, brain health, and longevity. Sarah grew up in Christchurch, New Zealand, and after completing her neuroscience degree at Otago University, she won a scholarship to Oxford University for her PhD training. After five years of medical research in Sydney, Australia, 
Sarah hung up her lab coat to build an online science communications business. She combines a wry sense of humor with an uncompromising mind. Whether she is writing or speaking on the TEDx stage, she tells science stories in a fun and compelling way. She's been featured in print media, such as the Wall Street Journal, The Guardian, and the Sydney Morning Herald, and can be seen or heard on SBS Insight, ABC Radio National, ABC Catalyst, and Channel 7 Mornings in Australia. Sarah lives on the northern beaches of Sydney, Australia with her Irish husband, and together they're raising two boys and a cocker spaniel, and they can be found sailing, surfing, mountain biking, or skiing. Here's my conversation with Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Welcome to the Woman Warriors podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I love your podcast. You do really important work, so I'm thrilled to be here. I'm so excited to have you. And it's interesting because for such a long time, I have wanted to find someone who could talk to me about, yeah, how our brain and body work and like why women's brains do what they do. I mean, why our body, female bodies do what they do. So I'm very excited about our conversation. But before we get started, Mm -hmm. I just want to, hoping you will talk a little bit about yourself and what inspired you to do this work and to write this book? Yeah, sure. Well, I I live in Sydney, Australia, but I'm actually a New Zealander. So I grew up in in New Zealand, which I think has gained a bit of recognition recently because we have a really fantastic prime minister and she's done a lot for putting Kiwi women in the headlines. So we're very proud of who we are and where we're from. And I certainly was incredibly fortunate Mm. to grow up in that part of the world because it's very down to earth and very real, and I'd like to think that that's still who, who I am. Now, I, I had a very happy childhood, grew up in a lovely family, lots of love, and I was one of those kids that always had my head in a book, just always enjoyed reading and learning, and I loved, I loved school mm. all the way through high school. Was toying with, you know, various kinds of careers, as you, as you do if you're a bit of an overachieving teenage girl and headed off headed off to university and I was sort of doing what we call in New, in New Zealand at that time it was like a sort of a health sciences first year to take you down into lots of the sort of the medical health science disciplines and was doing psychology lecture and read a book by a chap called Oliver Sacks who was a neurologist and he wrote a book called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat. Now I don't know if you know the book yeah, I remember hearing about it in school. Yeah, myself. and he and it was really it's an extraordinary book. And he writes he's he's a he's a wonderful writer and writes a series of case studies about people with very bizarre neurological disorders. And I was utterly utterly captivated by that. And this is back in the early nineties. And I remember saying to a friend who was doing a lot of the same subjects and I said, oh, I'm so interested in, in this kind of the brain and psychology and the biology of psychology. And he said, oh, well, there's this brand new degree discipline at another university down coming four hours away from where I lived called neuroscience. And I was like, oh, well, that sounds really mm. interesting. So I went down to that uni and checked it out and, and it really pulled together the neuroscience component from pharmacology and physiology and anatomy and psychology and psychiatry. And I was like, this this is my thing. So I transferred to that university um, and was one of the first cohort to go through and, and gain a degree in, in neuroscience from the university. Loved every second of wow. it. And it's really sort of been the path that I have never, ever deviated from since. It's such an incredibly broad, deep 
and rich subject. There's no way that you can even know everything there is to know. So especially for someone like me, where there's, I have just such a deep love of learning, it's a perfect discipline to be in. I was incredibly fortunate then to head off. Um, I went off traveling around with my friends around Europe with a backpack, as you did back in the early 90s, with $100 in my back pocket type of thing. (laughs) And I ended up, was very fortunate to win a scholarship to Oxford University to study my my master's, and then I did my PhD there as well. And when I was there, the research field that I was working in, I was really interested in brain development, and in particular, the role of sort of nature versus nurture, although that's quite an old fashioned way to think about it now. But I was interested in how the experiences that we have guide how the brain wires up during development. And now now we'd be more familiar with concepts such as using words like neuroplasticity. But even back then, back at the turn of the century, they weren't right. necessarily phrases that were used. But that's essentially what I was I was looking at was how plastic the brain is during early development. And and it's interesting for me because that now is a topic that there's such great thirst and interest for in the in the wider world. So when I was in Oxford, I met a gorgeous Irishman and we, 20 mm. odd years later or something, we're, we're married now with a couple of kids. And on a bit of a whim, back in 2002, we decided to go and live in Sydney, Australia for a year because we thought it sounded sunny and we could we're really outdoorsy. We're like, you know, great outdoors and sailing and beaches and surfing. Yeah. And, and that was sort of, we, yeah. we told his, his Irish mother that we were going for a year, that in 2002 and we're still here. <laughs> and, yeah, and very wow. obviously wow. where are we now, it's, as we're recording this, it's the end of March 2020. We can't get to the beach as much as we would like. Life is very different for us at this moment in time. But um, we've had a really fantastic enjoy living in Sydney a lot and that's why we've never left really in the last kind of 10 or 12 years um, I did about five years research in the universities here in Sydney carrying on my work looking at plasticity and how the brain changes and then I set up my own business about 12 years ago because I saw a real gap between what we were doing and the work that we were doing in the research lab and what people wanted to use and apply in their lives and so I've been doing that since really working, sort of taking the, taking the neuroscience, what can we do, what can we understand and, and how can I use that to help people in some meaningful way? Yeah, yeah. Well, and for your book, The Woman's Brain, you did a lot of research just sort of initially looking at our women's brains different than men's brains. And, you know, there's this whole, what was it, men are from mm. Mars, women or whatever it is, <laughs> men are from Mars, women are from Venus or on, like, like we're so different, but are we really biologically or neurologically so different? <laughs> That's a really good question. Cause when I started writing the book, I really went into it. Having written a piece for in the ABC here in Australia on menopause and brain fog and, and then thinking, wow, sort of chatting with a publisher, talking about menopause and pregnancy and puberty and thinking, oh, wouldn't it be really interesting to write a book about the neurobiology of periods and the pill and pregnancy. And so it was very much a book taking a look at women's yeah. health. But as soon as I said I was writing a book on, if I used the words the female brain instead of women's health, the first question I'd be asked was how different are male and female brains? Or you'd get some bloke saying, oh, can you tell me how to understand my wife? <laughs> <laughs> and all of this kind of thing. And it was curious to me because I wasn't writing a book about that. I was writing about puberty and the pill and 
periods. But anyway, I guess, you know, we all quite like this idea that we can kind of put all men over this side of the room, all men, women over that side of the room, have kind of a pink side and a blue side based on what's inside our skulls. And if we kind of open up our skulls, we could see these pink brains and women and blue brains and men. And we're really captivated by these findings of sex and gender differences, especially when they've got a very seductive brain-based explanation or neurosplaining, mm. as I call it. But it doesn't turn out that way when we start doing really careful studies, looking at the structure, the gross structure, the kind of the just look at a brain from the outside or zoom in with a microscope and look at the microarchitecture. And then when we start like looking at various thoughts or feelings or behaviors, it's not as easy as you might intuitively think to divide brains into pink and blue at all. And one concept that's come out of a lot of the literature is this idea of a mosaic brain, whereby we've all got so many differences in our brains and some women may have a brain that's made up of lots of pink and blue and purple and mauve and violet parts but so might a lot of men and we simply can't say all brains are this way and all brains are that way instead we need to start asking ourselves what is this particular difference we are curious about exploring Mm -hmm. between males and females how different is that difference really when it comes down to it because typically it turns out the differences are very 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 small and there's a massive overlap and it turns out that brains aren't actually that different at all. Some parts of brains and women are different yeah. from men. For example, women have a part of the brain that controls ovulation. Of course, men don't have that part of the brain. But the vast majority of our brains are devoted to interpreting what we see, to processing sound and movement and interacting with other people and thinking about solving maths equations if you're at primary school or learning a musical instrument or patting your dog or cooking a meal and smelling food and enjoying someone else's company, all of these things we all do, they're not gender specific. So, and I also think because of the vast majority of the work I did when I was working in the research lab, is taking a look at this concept of plasticity. So much of our brains are shaped by our lives and the experiences that we have and children are born into a gendered world. And I know in the U S a lot of people are quite fond of having these gender reveal parties. Oh yeah. I kind of think they're a bit ridiculous because they're not, you know, it's almost like the baby's life is determined before they're born based on whether they're Mm -hmm. pink or blue and every experience that we have, particularly through childhood shapes and sculpts our brains and teaches that child this is who you are in the world in which you're, you're, you're yeah. born into. Because a plastic brain essentially is built so that it can adapt to the world in which mm-hmm. it lives. And if children are born up in a very gendered way, and, and that's, I'm not saying that's necessarily right or wrong, then of course the brain is going to learn to behave in a yeah. certain way. So much of who we are depends on the experiences we have. So it's way more complicated than a male brain's different to female brains. Are all men different to all women when it comes down to it? Well, I mean, mostly we're, we're more similar than different, aren't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think to your point that, you know, if we have been born into a very gendered society from a very young age, we are picking up and modeling and behaving in these ways that, you know, you're these are the ways boys behave. These are the ways girls behave. And yeah, it just sort of yeah. becomes part of who we are. Exactly, exactly. There's a really interesting study I talk about in the book, or which was I'm so grateful it was published when it was. It was looking at this real, and we would see this in adults, particularly in you know Western world where 
um, we, we see it everywhere actually it's not just the western we've seen it forever and it's that she, old Cheryl Sandberg encouraging women to lean in because men are the ones that are more likely to put their hand up put themselves forward be very confident whereas women are far more kind of self-deprecating and less likely to ask for the raise, put their hand up in a room. And I see this all the time when I talk, I do a lot of public speaking. Mm-hmm. We have Q&A, the men always put their hands up first. And as soon as you start answering the men's questions, the women are less likely to. Wow. Now, that male self-confidence and belief in themselves starts at quite a young age. So these researchers are interested, when does that begin? Is it, is it a hormonal thing? Do we see it emerge at adolescence? We see it a lot earlier when hormones aren't doing anything. Hmm. So you go into a classroom of boys and girls at around age five, so very beginning of primary school or elementary school, as you call it, and say, hey, I have a board game that's designed for really clever kids. Who wants to learn how to play? It's a smart kids game. And all the boys will go, me, and all the girls will go, me. But then you go in and talk to the seven and eight-year-olds and say, who wants to play the game for smart kids? The boys go, me. And a lot of the girls go, oh, that's a game for the boys. Mm. Smart kids are the boys. Similarly, you could present them with a story about, you frame it in terms of, what is important to the kids so you could say who is the scientist who's going to save the world from coronavirus or who's going to help stop climate change who could grow up to be a scientist like that and the boys will go me and the girls will go me when they're about five get to ages seven and eight the boys will go well I could do that and the girls will go well that's what the boys are going to grow up to do so they're picking up these messages yeah. That the boys can be the ones that can be confident, go forward and put their hands up and the girls kind of defer to them. And they're learning it at a very young age. Yeah. I'm not sure what the answer is, but I think it's really important we realise how early these tendencies emerge. And it's, I mean, it's not to say, oh, it's teachers or it's parents, we shouldn't educate children, <laughs> look what they learn. But, you know, they pick these, this stuff up from the experiences that they have. Yeah. And it's hard to unlearn that as an adult woman. Oh, for sure. Oh my goodness. For sure. I know that I went back to grad school much later, you know, like my fifties. And I can remember being self-conscious about being the woman who is raising her hand. <laughs> like, you're sitting at, Well, you're probably sitting in the front row. <laughs> <laughs> probably. That's what you do when you're an adult student. You go back to uni, you sit in the front row and you're enthusiastic. Exactly. So <laughs> I had all the questions and then I'm like, I began to get very self-conscious. I'm like, okay. like I'm... Men probably don't feel as self-conscious because they haven't learned that what is important is to be polite and demure. And, right. And that's not, that's not an innate thing because we see it emerging in those early childhood years. So I think it's it's useful for us to understand that because in that we we, we go, well, I learned that behavior. Yes. I can learn new behavior. And isn't that powerful to know that you can change? Absolutely. Yes. And that's the amazing thing. That's that I just love about all this neuroplasticity research that we yeah. can change. Our brains can change and we can learn yeah. to be different. Yeah. But I also found in your book so interesting the research you did around our cycles. And I know so many women will that I see in, in therapy and in my life, friends, even I experience, like it feels as if our cycles control our mental health mm-hmm. sometimes. <laughs> yes. But yes. what did you find in the research around that? This is really, really for me, one of the most, this, this is a real game changer when I was writing the books. It came early on because I kind of went in utero childhood puberty and then I was going to have 
the menstrual cycle is and within puberty and then I was like I need a whole chapter of its own so it was early early on in writing the book yeah I came across some interesting research and, and I very much went into thinking this is going to be a book about biology and how our hormones did influence how we think and feel and so I thought well but I started taking a look at across the menstrual cycle we think oh, well if you're not on the pill or menopausal or pre-pubital you've got a menstrual cycle yeah. happening and so a lot of women can think of it as a monthly neuroscience experiment and I thought well does it influence how we think our, our cognitive abilities and I was delighted to find zero support for that notion no it doesn't matter what time of the month it is we're perfectly able to think and reason and judge and make decisions and and plan and be strategic which I'm so fortunate growing up in the part of the world I did and that we've always had a lot of women in positions of power and in politics and I was like well of course we can I knew that right right my right but, but me that. also nice to have it validated by research validated <laughs> by neuroscience yes but women who have jobs know that yes. right we're perfectly capable humans yes and then I thought well, what about emotions they're different because we a lot of us grow up with this story well yes we're on this roller coaster of hormones that we can't really get off and they control our emotional life mm-hmm. so I thought oh well, I'll look at PMS or PMT that kind of and I was really interested in that kind of moodiness, crankiness, this that women describe before they get their period. Now, I must add that I've been on the pill for many years, but when I wasn't on the pill, I never really suffered from PMS. It didn't really wasn't really kind of part of my personal experience. Mm-hmm. But that aside, I thought, well, it's meant to be very common. So I went and I found a meta-analysis, which if you're familiar or not with how research is done, a meta-analysis pulls together a lot of research, different research studies. And so there's power in numbers. We can make more certain assumptions based on more data. Mm-hmm. And this study was looking at rates of reported PMS and emotional symptoms in women in different countries in the world. It's fascinating. So if you went to France and Switzerland, about 10 or 15% of women said, yes, I suffer from PMS. Jump over the border from France into Spain, still in Europe, about 50% of Spanish women say they suffer from PMS. Mm. Varies all the way around the world. And you go into some countries, in, for example, Iran in the Middle East, about 90 to 95% of women there said, yes, they suffer from PMS. Mm. And I was like, well, huh, isn't that curious? Because if it's, well, hormones don't vary that much, and they certainly don't vary that much between France and Spain, but cultures and societies differ greatly. So what is influencing women to have these different experiences of, of PMS? Mm. So I started speaking to a woman's health psychiatrist in New Zealand, who's also called Sarah, Sarah Romans, and she thought the same. She said, I get it. she's obviously seeing a particular subset of women who have serious mental health issues. They're coming to a psychiatrist. But she said, they were all coming to me and defaulting to their reproductive capacity. I am a woman. I'm ruled by my hormones. And she said, I just didn't think that that was the case for them all. And she was familiar with these variations in PMS rates around the world and designed a study called the Mood and Daily Life Study. And so women had kind of an app that popped up on their phone and every day they had to record the day of the menstrual cycle, their current emotional status, and they were given a range of positive and negative and neutral emotions to choose from and the same number of each. So the data wasn't skewed to only negative emotions and maybe happy, right. which a lot of studies are as if we have 12 negative emotions and one positive. <laughs> how stressed they felt, how socially supported or not, their kind of social status and what was really telling them this was that they were not told it was a study looking at PMS symptoms. Uh, hundreds of women in the study, many, many hundreds of cycles gathered and the data was crunched. And it turned out that there were some women whose emotional status was determined 
by the hormonal status, by the day of the month. But it was a very small number. It was only about one to two in 20 women. Wow. So about five to 10% of women. The rest of the women, day of the cycle didn't have any influence on their emotional status. And this is interesting, but when, when you do a different type of study and you tell the woman, this is a study looking at emotions and PMS, you get a very different hmm. a data set. So when you're not priming people's expectations about their health outcomes, you see very, very different data. What is interesting, I was talking to Sarah about this on the phone. She said, it's so interesting. What was the key indicators of women's emotional status? How stressed they felt was important. Their physical health on that day was important, but the most key and the key indicator of their emotional health and well-being was how socially supported they felt. Oh, Did wow. they have someone that they could call on if they needed it? Did they feel loved and cared for and nurtured by someone else? Hmm. And that was an absolute turning point in writing this book because I started to see this pattern emerge when we're talking about girls entering puberty. What was the determinant on their how emotionally traumatic it was did they go on to develop anxiety and depression as they went through puberty it depended on the social context in which they were in were they going through puberty at the same time as their friends they were going through much earlier they were more vulnerable boys going through puberty earlier than their friends get bigger hairier musclier taller they rise in social status they're protected than the little guys what is a what is one of the greatest determinants of a woman's postnatal experience whether she develops postnatal depression. Mm. It's how socially she's supported she feels. It's the, that old story about who's in the village. Yeah. You know, we look at menopause. Obviously, that's a really emotional and difficult time for lots of women. But how socially supported a woman feels, how physically well she is, all of that is as much of an indicator to her experience as her hormonal fluctuations. Mm. And I saw that time and time and time again through the, through the book. Wow. Every researcher I spoke to said the same thing. I would say, how can we help a woman who's gone through pregnancy? How can we help a little girl entering puberty? How can we help someone who's suffering from anxiety and depression? And what would every single researcher, every single specialist in the field, they'd be like, oh, well, it's about the social support. It's about other people. It's about love. It's about connection. Mm, Wow. It makes so much sense. I mean, you think about how, well, as you know, going into puberty with no social support, no, you know, whether it's a parent or a sibling or an aunt or whatever, sort of guiding you through this mm-hmm. is like, this is normal. This is what's going to happen. And this is absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's a time it's, you go through puberty, and those of us who've gone through it can remember it very clearly. What I mean, I, I most women can always can very clearly remember the day they they first got their period. It's really embedded in in your memory. And your experience of that largely depends on how well prepared you were. The only way to be prepared is by other people giving you you that information. How normal was that for you? And also what was happening in your friendship groups at that time? If you, and it's so normal for young people, boys and girls, to sort of pull away from the family and focus on friends. And that's biologically normal right what they should what young people should be doing Mm -hmm. and so that social group depend just just is is so vital at that point in time and if it's you feel different Mm -hmm. that is going to have a a very powerful outcome on your emotional experience so when we we tend to focus on hormones 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 all the time and they play a role but they're not the loudest voice in the crowd Yeah. yeah every one of our emotional experiences and I think that that is such good news 
well because again we can do a lot about a lot of things we, we can't do you know if you're a female and you've got a menstrual cycle that's kind of what you've got you can take care of your health but you can't necessarily unless you're perfectly happy to go on the pill like i've always been change your hormonal fluctuations so we've got so much mm. yeah. choice and agency over our emotional responses we're not on a roller coaster that we can't get off and i think that that's for me being was a real surprise real surprise when i wrote the book that that was what kept coming up time and time again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think you do say in the book too that there are people that do have, I'm forgetting the letters, but, you know, severe. Yeah, premenstrual dysmorphic disorder, so PMDD, which yes. is a severe type of PMS. And that's what I said. And even in the careful studies that were done, for example, with Sarah Romans and the Mood and Daily Life, yeah. there were a subset of women who were far more sensitive. Yeah. But most women were not. And it's like we see when we look at women around the world, what was the influence on that? Is this is the kind of the, the, the narratives and the storytelling that emerges within a group of women, within a society, within a particular culture. And that was a stronger influence on women's PMS symptoms than hormones. It's the stories that we've been, if you've been brought up to expect that you're going to suffer from PMS, perhaps your mother did or your mother was told that she would and you're told well one week a month you're going to feel pretty rubbish and interestingly if you look into all of the feminist literature we see a very very similar story emerge in that space and that you know pms is just women are given permission to say what they think and feel for one week a month <laughs> the rest of the three weeks we are keeping keeping ourselves quiet because that's what we've been told we should do interesting so yeah i think that's that's really interesting and and, um, and it's not to say that, that hormones don't influence how we feel, mm-hmm. but perhaps not as much as we may have been taught. And I think that that's quite a powerful message. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so now I want to shift to, you know, sort of older, I'm just talking about myself feeling older, but oh, that's perimenopause, oh, <laughs> you know, perimenopause, menopause. So yeah. I can recall before, I guess I knew I was in perimenopause, but just really feeling as if, like I was pre-dementia. Like I was, I, I can, I can remember calling my sister, who's older than me, and saying, like, I'm not sure what's happening. Like I, well, I was also a little depressed, and there was a lot going on, and. She had some friends who were older and she's like, I think this is what's happening for you. You know, this is part of the menopausal experience. And I've had clients share that with me as well. And so do hormones, do the, are changing hormonal fluctuations impact our cognitive stuff or how we're feeling in the world during? Well, that's really interesting because that was what was kind of the, the spark for writing this book was I wrote an article on menopause perimenopause and brain fog and that women start many women do experience kind of they become fuzzy and forgetful and moody and think oh that's the first signs of alzheimer's and dementia and get very very fearful about that yeah it's a very very common experience and i I have a friend who i went uh, studied with in oxford who is an alzheimer's disease researcher and the, the same thing happened to her she became so concerned that she was experiencing Alzheimer's symptoms and she's an expert in the field she went to her GP and the GP said I think it might be perimenopause and and what turns out what is happening in perimenopause is we have this these huge surges 
and kind of a real bumpy ride of hormones where we're kind of, it's almost like our ovaries are trying to get those, those last bit of the conversation going with the brain. <laughs> and we know estrogen, there are estrogen receptors in our brain. Our ovaries produce estrogen. Um, usually TikTok's along quite regularly most of our lives and then we get to perimenopause and it becomes, um, it does fluctuate wildly. And it turns out it's that fluctuation mm. that has an effect. Now, Again, I was like, well, is it, does the fluctuation have a direct effect on some of the symptoms women experience? And there's a real chicken and egg scenario in here because the, by far and away, the most common symptom that women experience in the, in the perimenopause, and of course, this is the, the years leading up to your final period, mm-hmm. um, it could be, you know, four, five, six, eight years, and I'm 45, so I'm right in the middle of it. Mm-hmm. The most common symptom is hot flashes, you know, getting all hot and sweaty or, or night sweats. Oh, yeah. And in particular, when we experience night sweats or hot flashes at night, it disrupts our sleep, mm-hmm. it wakes us up completely, or it brings us out of deep sleep. And it may be that it is the sleep disruption that is causing a lot of the other issues. When you're not getting a good full night's sleep, you, f- you feel far less control over your emotions. Maybe that leads to, your, your, you know, women at, at our age, in our late 40s, you know, we've got teenage kids, we've got aging parents. Right now, we've got this global pandemic. Yeah. We're often at the peak of our careers. We've got a lot going on. Mm-hmm. And if you're not getting good sleep, because perhaps you're having hot flashes at night perhaps that's what's causing a lot of problems so it's a real chicken and egg scenario we don't really understand what's causing what like kind of where in the line mm-hmm. these things are, are, are happening but we know the hot flash is definitely directly attributable to the fluctuating hormones because if you treat women with hrt or myself i went back on um, the oral contraceptive pill because i was having hot flashes at night not yeah. during the day but I, like last winter, I was boiling hot and I was sweating and I'd kick the covers off and fall back asleep. And then I'd wake up and I was freezing cold. Winter, <laughs> the covers on. And I, this went on for a few months and I was like, I can't, I can't be perimenopausal. But I went and saw my OBGYN and she was like, well, I think you are. Mm. She said, how about you go back on the oral contraceptive pill? Because you're still getting your periods right. every month. Right. And I was like, okay, fine. And, and what that does and lots of women don't feel comfortable with this, but I certainly did it. Kind of flatlines that fluctuation of hormones. It gives you lots of estrogen. Mm-hmm. And within a month, I was back to sleeping. I've always been the world's best sleeper, sleeping all night again, not waking up sweating. Yeah, My skin was amazing. And my hairdresser said to me the other day, she said, there's something about your hair that's changed in the last year. It's much thicker because I've always had quite fine hair. She said, your hair is much thicker. Huh. So that's probably the effects of, of estrogen and the pill for me. Yeah. So, you know, I'm, and I'm not saying this is not my prescription. I'm not a doctor. I'm just talking about my personal experience here. But it gave me a bit of control back. Lots of women feel very fearful about taking hormone replacements, whether it be the pill if you're perimenopausal or HRT, perhaps yeah. a bit further down the track. There's a great deal of fear around that, oh, but certainly so we much. know if your symptoms are hot flashes, we understand a little bit about the neurobiology of that too. So there's a region in your brain called the hypothalamus, which controls lots of things, body temperature being one. And when estrogen levels start declining, it's like a thermostat; it gets a bit narrower. Hmm. So the top temperature goes down, the bottom temperature goes up, and you only need a much smaller shift in body temperature to suddenly feel like you're incredibly hot. If we introduce estrogen back into the system, if you're still perimenopausal, there are no health 
risks, so long as you don't have a history of breast cancer and whatnot, that's something every woman has to manage with their own healthcare provider. But right. if you introduce estrogen back, HRT or perhaps the oral contraceptive pill, the thermostat kind of goes back to its original setting hmm. and you don't get as hot again. Wow. So we understand the neurobiology of that quite well now. Yeah, yeah. That's pretty amazing how easily things can sort of get disrupted in our through hormones and changing and just to change our internal body temperature is just pretty crazy. Oh, for sure. For sure. But I mean, I think um, certainly for me, I felt very well educated on the subject. And there's a lot of fear around HRT that came from the studies that were done kind of back at the turn of the century, 2002, 2003, the women's health studies came out. Oh, I remember. It was where, all yeah, like... Every, everyone kind of went off HRT globally because a lot of large studies have been done looking at, at women taking HRT and it looked like a lot of diseases increased cancers and heart disease, et cetera. And so the studies were stopped and people became very, very fearful about HRT almost overnight. And it's really interesting now, those studies have been looked at in a great deal of more detail. And a lot of women were entering these studies, about half of the women in the studies were put on HRT when they were in their 50s, 60s, and even 70s. So 10, 20, even 30 years after they had gone through menopause. And it, and it was those subset of women who had estrogen reintroduced back into their system, sometimes decades after they'd weaned off it, those were the women that showed the increased risk of these various health issues. Oh. Women who were put on HRT or, or whatever medication it was for their symptoms, if they were symptomatic and they started taking it when they were symptomatic, mm-hmm. perimenopausal, or within a year or two of the menopause, we don't see the same increased risk yeah. in, in those women. And it was the older ladies who skewed the data. They should never have been put on it. And that has since been validated quite well in a lot of animal studies. You can go on and validate a lot of this. We can look at, you know, menopausal animals in the lab, menopausal mice. Hmm. And we see when you reintroduce estrogen into a system, that's when it causes the damage. So there was a lot of fear back then, rightly so at that point, because we didn't understand the data well enough. And now We've looked back on that. There's a generation of women who've been scared off HRT, but what I certainly see now is amongst my group of friends who are all in our mid, mid late 40s, certainly here in Australia at least, those messages are through and women are feeling much more comfortable. There's not the fear that the medical profession is really educated on all of this data now. And yeah. we, you know, we've got options now if we so choose, which is um, a really positive thing. It really is. It really is. Because I... I mean, I definitely got hot flashes, but it didn't, I mean, maybe it was disrupting my life more than I realized, but I, it was okay. But I have a few friends who it, yeah, it stops them from sleeping. It's making them, mm. yeah. And so they've been able to go on HRT and really yeah. it changed their lives. It changed their lives. It yeah. does. It does change lives. One researcher I said to her, he said, oh, I have women who are going through menopause giving up work. He said, but I have cancer patients who carry on working. Um, and, you know, gosh, yeah. it's nice to have some options. So you're like, <laughs> right <laughs> now, <laughs> there's enough disruption going on. So I think whatever we can manage, yes. we, should, we should manage. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to just say that I loved, you know, I think you had one section about menopause and like, why do we as humans have this long life after no longer being able to birth children and be reproductive? 
And you talk about the orca whales. And I oh, know that's a beautiful um, idea, isn't it? It is. It is. We talk a little bit about that and what. what yeah. What well, it, yeah. It's, I mean, it's this lovely um, notion that I came across. It's like, and almost every mammal in the animal kingdom, we like to look to the animal kingdom to see, because we are part of the animal kingdom too. Yeah. And as I, I, I often say, the animal kingdom doesn't read books on what to expect when they're expecting. And as it turns out, that's a pretty powerful <laughs> indicator of but why we looked at all of the rest of the animal kingdom, but apart from humans and a couple of species of whale, <laughs> once you go through menopause, you you die pretty much straight away. So you end up, your, your reproductive years are kind of over and then that's it for you because you're kind of dispensable. Right. But what is it about humans and, and orca whales? And I think it's also pilot whales actually. Oh, yeah. Why, you know, why do we kind of carry on living? And there's this lovely notion been studied in these whale populations that it's this kind of like this grandmother theory or this wise matriarch theory that having a, a woman with wisdom that she's gathered up over years of life experience who's no longer fertile, so she's not her time is not taken up with raising children, yeah. but she has wisdom to part and part to the community in which she lives, then that promotes survival within that community of the of the young people coming through. And the whale populations we would see that with a wise menopausal matriarch, well, she's the one that knows where to find food when times are tough. Mm. And the pods that have those wise postmenopausal matriarchs are, are healthier and survive mm. for longer. And you know, there's more survival of the young. They're able to find food. Um, so it's a you know it's a, a whether or not we can it's just kind of coincidence, but there is no, this but I like that. <laughs> that we postmenopausal women, you know, we have knowledge and experience that yeah. we've, we've built up over many years. And when we're not no longer raising our children, we can move on to a really new role in society. And gosh, there's a need for warmth and wisdom and empathy and kindness and leadership yes. right now. Men can do that, but they don't seem to be doing that great a job, a lot of them. <laughs> But there's, there's this, yeah. you know, there's all, all these wonderful women out there I know. Mm-hmm. And I often think about if people know Jacinda Ardern, the New Zealand Prime Minister, gosh, she's just, mm-hmm. just epitomises warmth and kindness and clean, clear, warm, nurturing leadership. Yeah. Um, and I know so many women like her, but we just don't have that confidence to put up our hands and lead. Yeah. <laughs> and. Yeah. And this, gosh, we're we're all missing out. I know. I by know. women not having the confidence to do what someone like Jacinda does, when we're all we've got that ability, we just yes. need we just need to step up a bit. Well, and the hard part here, especially in this our my country, the United States, like the women that do rise to the top tend to be the women who have learned to sort of do politics or leadership in a very male way because that's how they got you know they are confident they are and then they're then shamed and mm. you know they're the bitch they're the whatever yeah yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a it's a terrible thing yeah but you know people thing. also seem to weirdly then have such great reverence for someone like the queen right um, right you know like <laughs> crown is one of like the top shows to watch on netflix and people just think you know right. and they're perfectly happy to look to someone like the queen with reverence and respect yeah, and yeah. so there are ways that women can lead. I think I um, believe for sure. We, Absolutely, we just don't. Some sometimes we just don't seem to think that they can. But I think also 
we need to just, you know, there's lots of ways that we can do that. That's mm-hmm. not the politics. It's not just becoming president or prime minister. Right. There's lots of ways that we can all do that within our own communities. And that's kind of where you've got to start, I think. I think so too. So if you wanted the listeners of the podcast to take away something, what would be from your book? What would that, if there's oh, a nugget? Look, um, definitely this idea, like if I had to give a prescription, it would be a social prescription. And it didn't matter whether it's, you know, a newborn baby, what does it need more than anything? Mm you know, a little kid starting school, young people, you know, girl getting her period for the first time or going, you know, going through those teenage years, new mums, you know, just women in midlife who are kind of confused, older women, people in aged care, what do, what does everyone need? And it is it's that social prescription. And that is one of the, and we have very clear data that, that is one of the most powerful determinants of health, well-being, yeah. emotional stability, happiness, what makes life matter. And when you look back across your life course, what are the things that might mean the most? And gosh, isn't the world learning that now? What matters more than anything is, is the people. Yeah. People can't, we're being told we should socially isolate. We're really, we're just being asked to physically distance, not yes. to become lonely and not to turn away from each other. And what is everyone struggling with more than anything is being told you can't be with other people. Yeah. And I think that that is, is, is to remember that. And especially right now, there's so much focus on this, these words social isolation and we need to think well, it's more about physical distancing and we're, we're quite fortunate that this has happened in a way in the internet era where we can stay connected. Oh, yeah. Um, and yeah. I grew up in New Zealand. My husband grew up in Ireland. Neither of our families live in the country we live in. So for years, we have facilitated grandparent-grandchildren relationships via Skype and FaceTime and yeah. email I talk to my mum on FaceTime most days, so Mm -hmm. I don't feel disconnected from her because I've fostered that connection using a different way. And I think it's about feeling that you are connected with people that is important. We have to, I think, right now remember that. Yeah. Physically distant, but stay emotionally, socially connected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Sarah, how do people find you if they want to know more about you and your work? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm on social media. I can I have my moments of being active on social media and other times when I take care of myself and duck away. <laughs> yeah. But I'm I play around a bit on Instagram. So I, on Instagram I'm Sarah Marie Mackay. I'm sure you'll provide hopefully you'll provide the link. I will. I will provide Marie all the links. To yeah. e. I have a website which is actually um, going through a bit of a revamp at the moment, but at the moment people can find it at yourbrainhealth.com.au. And if they go to yourbrainhealth.com.au forward slash toolkit, there is a a brain health toolkit that they can download, which contains some of my hand-picked tools and strategies that will give people a bit of an insight into the world of brain science, but how they can use neuroscience in their lives and in the work that they do as well. Cool. Well, I will definitely provide all those links in the show notes and I hope people will check them out. Yeah, I hope so too. And um, I hope just everyone stays connected, even though, you know, my boys are quite fond of saying we're all in this together, but separately. (laughs) There you go. Yes. And we've got to get back to basics. Yeah, yeah. Sleep, I agree. sleep's a superpower. It passes the time. Sleep, try and get some exercise in and just keep loving those around us. 
Absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being a guest today. I really appreciate you taking the time all the way across the world from me. And it was really great to connect. Yeah, you too. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure chatting. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sarah McKay, all of the resources, her book, her website, everything we talked about, all the links to potential resources are in the show notes. So you can find them at womanwarriors.com. It will be the latest episode. I also wanted to share that next month we are going to be hosted by a new sponsor, Upfinch Journaling. And I'm pretty excited to have a sponsor for one, which means they are going to pay for some advertising. So you will be hearing some advertisements by me for their product, but I'm also excited to be partnering with them for the month of January. So you can find out more next month on how you can get a subscription to Upfinch. I hope you have a wonderful week. I hope you had good holidays. I hope you have a happy, happy, happy new year. Here's hoping that 2021 will be different, will be better, will be less traumatizing for all of us. Take care of yourselves. Treat yourself with kindness and love. Take care of your bodies this week. Ciao for now from This Woman Warrior. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Woman Warriors Podcast. The information in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. Music was written and performed by Andy Cush. If you'd like more information on this episode, you can find the show notes, the resources shared today, and links to the guest profiles at womanwarriors.com.